We're continuing on in our series of fixing our eyes on Jesus as we prepare for Easter. And um, I've gotten a lot about, out of these messages as I've prepared them, and they always seem to uh, challenge me about my relationship with Jesus Christ and fixing my eyes on Jesus because we can fix our eyes on a lot of things in this world. We can fix our eyes on ourselves. We can fix our eyes on other people. We can fix our eyes on the circumstance that we're in. We could fix our eyes on the problems that we have. But the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And one of the things that uh, we've been learning about is uh, this idea. Is our, do we have anything here? Am I on here? There we go. Okay. Uh, One of the things that we're learning about, and let me just give a little bit of review about fixing our eyes on Jesus. The last few weeks we've spoken about Jesus being our master teacher. We build our lives upon him. We can find a solid foundation for our lives, and we can build the security, the significance, and the acceptance we need to build our lives upon. Uh, He is the one that has the words of eternal life, but also the wisdom that we need in our lives for any circumstance that we find ourselves in. He's also the miracle worker. Jesus can intervene in our lives and do things that nobody else can do. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says that in Hebrews 13.8. We learned that last week. Jesus is able to do things that nobody else can do. And then... Today we're going to look at the intentionality of Jesus as a servant. Now this is completely the flip side of what we've been studying so far. We look at Jesus having authority to teach. And everything he says is fulfilled. He has also the power to fulfill everything that he's saying. But on this side of Jesus' character, we see him as a servant. Now, that's pretty amazing because he is the son of God, but he comes as a humble servant. It's one of the unique hallmarks of Jesus' ministry because you could see that Jesus is powerful. You could see that he's a miracle worker. But one of the things that we don't often see is that Jesus was a servant leader. He was humble. He laid down his life. But not only that was in a very practical way, he was teaching his disciples and he teaches us to do the same thing. And sometimes we just don't get it. Sometimes we're like the disciples who had a hard time understanding that. So the disciples saw the miracles, they saw the authority of Jesus. But when Jesus wanted to be their servant, or he was... The suffering servant, they said, whoa, Jesus, no, no, not you, not you. You're you're worthy of greater things than that. But we understand that Jesus came, he descended into greatness, meaning he came from heaven to earth, and then he descended even lower. The Bible says that he who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. That's amazing. You think about this. 
Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet he empties himself and becomes a servant. It has been the hallmark of Christians, it should be, the hallmark of Christians, not to fly around in jets and have million-dollar homes. The hallmark of a Christian is to be a servant. It's to be a servant. In fact, the attitude of servanthood is something that the Apostle Paul and all the apostles, after the resurrection, really understood and got, and they continued to teach it wherever they went. In fact, the verse before this definition of who Jesus is says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he breaks it down. He said, this is who Jesus is. But then he says, have the same mindset that Christ had. That our attitude and our thinking should be in line with what Jesus did in descending into greatness. Meaning, humbling ourselves is actually a good thing. Serving others is actually what God calls us to. Loving unconditionally is what God has called us to do. Forgiving those that have offended us is what God has called us to do. Even if we may be right and we've been wronged, God calls us to forgive. I don't know if I'm speaking to somebody here. You see, we see this teaching throughout the New Testament. It's a pattern of our life after Jesus. We live with the strength he gives. When we do this, when we are submitted to God... When the Holy Spirit enters into our life and transforms us, we have the strength to become intentional servants as well. Intentional servants. Because that's what Jesus did. And his life is placed in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God will give you opportunities to be a servant. You say, whoa, Al, I don't want that kind of opportunity. I want an opportunity for promotion. I want an opportunity to make some money. I want an opportunity to be successful. I want an opportunity to go to the best school I want to go to. I want an opportunity to really live and be happy. You see, at the height of Jesus' popularity... When the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus doesn't ride in on a white horse. He could have. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. But he rides in on the foal of a donkey. He rides on on this little donkey to the crowds waving Hosanna. And he knows he's walking into a place. He's riding into Jerusalem to sacrifice his life for you and me. And the Bible says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, 
who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be t- used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Wow, that is hard to do. That is difficult to do. I mean, if we really grasp that with our minds, Jesus wants us to be servants, that's, that's a difficult thing to do. Because we're usually measuring our position, whether it's at the job, or whether it's in the family, or whether it's at school, and we have this, who's the best, who's the worst, and where do I fit in the line of greatest to least? You see, the disciples had the same thing. They dealt with the same thing. In fact, you see it in the Gospel of Mark, is that they're always measuring themselves against each other. And so it's very natural but it's not supernatural. And what Jesus wanted to do was something supernatural in their lives. It's very natural for us to measure ourselves against somebody else. It's very natural for us to see who's getting the most pay on our jobs or where do we fit in or when's the next promotion. All those things, they're not wrong in themselves. They're very natural to do. But when it becomes the fixation of our lives, we can't be servants. We can't fulfill what God has called us to do. It's very difficult to do that. And so Jesus understands what his disciples are doing. Because do you remember the story last week that I shared with you about the the demonized uh, young boy? And his father brought him to Jesus. The disciples couldn't cast out the demon or heal the boy. And then Jesus does it. And the father is uh, just so thankful. He believes, but he says, Lord, help my unbelief. And the disciples see this great miracle. Well, you know what happens right after that? They leave that place and they go back to Galilee. And so as they're going along the road, you know, this, this must have been their conversation. It doesn't say this in the Bible, but I, I have a biblical imagination here. So I'm thinking about it. I'm saying, okay, uh, Peter, why couldn't you cast out the demon? You know why? Because I should have done it. I think I have greater faith than you. You don't have greater faith than me. I have the greater faith. In fact, I was the one that walked on water. Come on. And so they're arguing among themselves. The Bible says this. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. This is the same chapter, a few verses right after this. It says in chapter 9, Uh, 33 to 34, they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And these disciples, they always did it. Who does Jesus love the most? So you got Peter, you got James, and you got John. They went up to the mountain, right? They're the three closest. They must have been thinking, hey, we, we are number one, two, three. We got a little argument about who's number one, who's number two, number three, but we're right up there. Now, the other disciples, Thomas, 
where does he fit in there, man? He must be down on the bottom there because the guy has no faith. He's always doubting. He's always struggling. He's always got this, oh, man, what are we going to do now? You know, like this, this is, you know, and you've got all these different personalities that Jesus is dealing with. And I would think at this moment, Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He already knows the time is coming towards his death. He's got to turn the whole kingdom over to these 12 guys. And they still have this problem of self-obsession. Of trying to find their importance in what they do and not in Jesus. Man, they're struggling big time. I would, if I was Jesus, I'd just give up on them. Let's get 12 new guys. All right, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. Let's get 12 new guys. You guys just don't get it. Not Jesus. I'm so glad he does not give up on you and he does not give up on me. We may be struggling with the same issues. We may be struggling with an attitude that is not servant, loving, caring attitude, but he never gives up on us. He continues to pursue us with his love. He wants to change the inside of us, our attitudes. He wants to do something new and different in us. But you know what happens? Mark chapter 10. Looks at, they, they leave that place, Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. A little while later, James and John, the two guys that went up to the mountain of transfiguration, they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And they're pretty bold. Jesus, we know you can do anything. We want you to do whatever we ask you to do. And so Jesus, he goes along with them. You know why Jesus goes along with them? Just same reason he goes along with us. Sometimes he wants to see what's really in our heart. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, let one, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Because we're the greatest. That's really what they're thinking. And you know, what they're saying is, let John be the prime minister. I'll be the chief of staff of your cabinet. And we'll take over this place. But you've got to have the right people beside you. And we're it. And so their focus is so on themselves and their position, their promotion, their power, their authority, that they're missing the whole picture. Jesus, another thing in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus warns them about his death one time, and then they have this argument about who's the greatest. Jesus warns them the second time about his death and resurrection, and they have the same argument three times. They have this argument. It's very hard not to become self-centered or so full of ourselves, right? And this is what Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 10, verses 40 
41, 42. When the ten heard about this, uh, they became indignant with James and John. So they heard what happened. They took Jesus on a private conversation, you know, got him alone and started talking to him. And the other ten disciples found out about it. And you think that they're happy about it? No. No, they're saying, you know, they're indignant. They're angry. Jesus called them together. He said, come here. Huddle up. All 12 of you, come over here. He brings them all together. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Look at the Roman Empire. You'll see a succession of power. There's the emperor. Then there's the generals. Then there's the uh, cohort legions and uh, the, 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 the leaders of the legions and they have this authority, this chain of authority. The high officials exercise authority over them. When they say jump, you say how high? That's what they do. But Jesus said, not so with you. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Jesus flipped the whole chain of command upside down. And he says, if you want to be great, be the servant. No way! I'm not signing up for that. The disciples still don't get it. He says, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And Jesus used the word slave there. He used the word that would be the same as somebody that was bought with a price and had to do whatever they were told by their master. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying, I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom in the original language, it doesn't mean like a ransom uh, payment for somebody that got kidnapped. It means the payment you make to free somebody out of slavery. There's somebody that's become an indentured slave and somebody takes an amount of money and purchases their freedom for them. And this is what Jesus did. He purchased our freedom so that we could be free to love and to serve others. And that is the power of the gospel. So every time when you see an opportunity... To serve somebody, it's actually not a negative. It's really a positive in God's kingdom. When you have an opportunity to serve, I think some of the greatest servants God has ever made are our mothers. Right? They serve no matter what. They serve out of love. They end up serving and sacrificing for so many times. Not every mother. I know there's exceptions to that. But service happens within a family. It can happen 
on the job. It can happen at school. You have opportunities to serve. Probably one of the greatest examples of a godly marriage is somebody, is a husband who believes in this, who believes in servanthood. Not a husband who lords it over their wife, but a husband who lovingly serves his wife. So what does Jesus do? He's got to get this through to his disciples because the kingdom of God depends on service and love. The kingdom of God, if it's ever going to spread throughout the world, it's ever going to transform lives, it's got to be the hallmark of a follower of Jesus. So what does he do? He prepares the Passover meal. After he rides into Jerusalem, he goes and he celebrates a Passover with his disciples. The Bible says this. It was just in John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Remember I said... What I might do, Jesus would never do that. He would never give up on his followers. He would never give up on them. And so he loves them right to the very end. The Bible says this, it was the evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Stop right there. What's going on in Jesus' mind? I know where Judas fits in on the totem pole of the disciples. If Peter, James, and John are the greatest, where's Judas? Bottom wrong, bottom wrong. He used to steal things from the treasury. He would always argue with the disciples about how the money was spent. He was pocketing half of it. He had no power or authority of Jesus in his life, most likely. Not very much. And he was confused about his identity and who Jesus was. And so he was an easy target for the enemy. Because when you're living a self-absorbed life, it's very difficult to sense the presence and power of God in your life. So, when the devil prompted Judas, he went ahead and did it. And I got a, I got a feeling, it doesn't say this in the Bible, this is just something I've been studying and thinking about. I got a feeling, part of his angst, oh, you love Jesus so much, I'm going to get him killed. The way you guys have been treating me, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'll take some revenge. I'll get your savior and master killed. He played right into the bait that Satan gave him.
disciples, they're not listening to Jesus. They're not listening to what he has said. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. You notice the difference of the identity of Jesus and the identity of Judas. Jesus understood God loved him, had a purpose, had a plan for his life, and so he was able to do what nobody else could do, become a servant. If you want to become a servant, your identity has to be so wrapped up in understanding that God loves you, that he values you, that you're significant. And that frees you then to love other people because you're not looking for something in return from them. You're looking to give. And because you're looking to give, then he has the ability to empower you to give and You're blessed just to be able to be like Jesus. It's a whole different way of thinking. So what does Jesus do? So Jesus, he gets up from the outer meal and he takes off his outer clothing. You know, Jesus, I'm not going to do this. It'd probably be in your undershirt, okay? I'm not going to do that. If I was a little more physically fit, I might, but then it would just be about me. So Jesus, he sees his disciples here. They've all come into the Passover meal. Uh, they're already sitting down. It's, it's kind of like they're already into the meal. They're already eating. One of the first things that you're supposed to do if you invite somebody to your house or if there is a banquet Somebody's got to wash the feet of those who came in. It was a sign of hospitality, a sign of honor. And usually it went to the lowest person on the totem pole. In fact, the Jewish people would hire Gentiles, non-Jews, to do foot washing. Because it was beneath anybody else to do it. So just get somebody, get a foot washer. But they didn't get a foot washer. There was no foot washer there. Jesus had prepared the meal, done everything. They all sat around with dirty, stinky feet. And they must have been thinking, I ain't going to wash anybody's feet today. That's not my job. Maybe it's, uh, hey, Peter, you think you're so great? Go ahead, wash everybody's feet. I ain't washing anybody's feet. (laughs) Forget you. I'm not doing that. You could see the tension in the room, and Jesus, he just gets up, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around him, goes to each of the disciples' feet. I don't know if they were in sandals, but he takes off their dirty, stinky sandals. And then each one, he takes the water. He pours the water in, and he takes each one, and he goes to each disciple, and he washes their feet. I'm not saying, this isn't like a steam job that, he gets down on his hands and knees, sticks their feet in the water, and washes each one. And I got a feeling he was talking or thinking, and they were understanding their deepest need. 
their deepest needs. What was going on in their soul. He understood what was going on in the inside of them. Even more than they understood. And as He washed each one's feet. Just like He does to us when we're in His presence. He can speak to us what nobody else can speak. He can convey love that nobody else can convey. He can motivate us to do things that nobody else can motivate us to do. And that's what Jesus did. Do you know what it says in the verses that I quoted from um, Philippians chapter 2? Well, the verses even before it says, have the same mind as, of, that was in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you. Have this same attitude. These verses are above it. Do nothing. This is for believers. This is not for priests and not for pastors. This is for all believers. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Wow. Can you imagine if everybody in the church had this attitude? If everybody in the youth group had this attitude? Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't think about yourself. But rather think with humility and value others better than yourself. Like you greet everybody. You try to love everybody. You try to serve them as best as you can. Man, I want to belong to something like that. That is so different than the world where people are trying to take advantage of you. You know, how many times you have somebody that does a service call for you and and you're wondering, are they going to take advantage of me? Like, how much does it cost to fix my sprinkler system? Or how much does it really cost to fix my car? Can I trust this mechanic? You know, we're looking about who's going to take advantage of of me. And so we keep our cards close to us. We live, try to live in a bubble. I'm not going to let anybody take advantage of me. And if you're a Christian, and if I'm, I'm like that, then we're not living in the freedom that God has called us to. says this when in John chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on. I can put my, my uh, jacket back on. He returned to his place. And he said this. He asked some questions. Do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what I've done for you? Jesus has done this for each one of us. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your master and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Wow. He gets done. And then he challenges them. Are you going to wash each other's feet? And they understood what that meant. Are you going to be the servant? Are you going to be the servant of all? How do you wash someone's feet today? That's a question I've been asking myself this week. How do I wash somebody's feet without making it real awkward. You know, like bring somebody up here. Uh, yeah, Jeff, come on up. I'm going to wash your feet. No, I'm not going to do that. But there's another way to do it. It's in acts of kindness. It's in words of affirmation. It's in acts of service. It's in giving of ourselves. It's in substitutional sacrifice that we make. We see the need of somebody else and we say, I'm going to step in. That's hard. Because you could be in a place where you're going to be taken advantage of. You could be in a place where it's not going to be appreciated. You could be in a place where you're not going to get any accolades or affirmation or anything out of it, except God prompted you to do something like that. And I'm saying prompted by the Holy Spirit to show acts of love and kindness and service. You know, some of the most successful companies in the world have this as their motto. Love and serve the customer. Number one. I don't know how many actually do it. But it's going to be a successful company if they do it. See, the principle that Jesus put into place, people are sometimes copying those principles in business, in life, in family. But for it to really take root in our lives, somebody that believes in Jesus that Jesus has actually washed their life, washed their sins away, forgiven them of everything. And then he says, now I want you to forgive others. Somebody that has actually been touched by Jesus in their life, transformed in their heart, beginning to understand that God fully loves them, fully knows them, and yet, He's continuing to back them up even when they make a mistake, even when they fall, even when they sin, they're going to be forgiven. That type of person who understands that and knows that has the strength to be a servant. They have the strength to be a servant. This week, I'm going to close with this. This week, our church's sprinkler system was repaired. The repairman, you know, I'm usually here during the day, and the repairman finished the job, and then Pastor Peter and I were downstairs, and he needed the receipt signed. So he had been out 
side fixing the sprinklers. He had to dig a hole, and he got pretty muddy. And so, you know how we pride our church on always cleaning up? You know, always keeping it nice and clean? It's nice. You know, it's nice to have that. The Bible never says cleanliness is next to godliness, but, but we're pretty much up there, you know. And so this guy walks in, and I see Pastor Peter. He signs the thing for him, and then he walks back out. We finish setting up, and, and then I see him walking out, and while he's walking out, I see his trail of mud. Mud! In our, hall, in our church hallway, up the stairs, there's clunks of mud. And he, I said, hey, hey. And he kept on walking. I said, hey, you, you, you got mud all over the floor. Hey. He didn't hear me. He just kept on going. I, was, I got ticked off. I'm about ready to run out there and give him you know, peace of my mind. What kind of service is this? You know, you got, you got the church all muddy. And then the Holy Spirit says, pick it up. I said, hey, what? That can't be God. Pick up the mud. I don't have any. Pick it up with your hands. Now, I know that thought did not come from me. What came from me was, hey, get back here, clean it up. You know, what comes to our mind when we think about Jesus and being a servant of all? It's, it's not always nice. It's messy to be a servant. It's hard to be a servant. Now, that example, it took me like two minutes to clean it up. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody. You've got to care for somebody because they're sick. Day after day after day. After day, it affects your life. I know some of you have done that. Cared for elderly parents. Cared for children. Cared for family. Some of you have sacrificed so many different ways. But you know what? If we do it God's way, it's worth it. I believe when we get up to heaven, he's not going to look at our bank account or how many degrees we had or how successful we were. You know what the bottom line is going to be? Good and faithful, what is it? Servant. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today that you would challenge us. Move in us. Speak to us. Help us to be your servants. Lord, I confess this is not something I have within me in my own strength. 
this has got to be supernatural. And yet it also has to involve me cooperating with you. And I know that's true for every one of us here. Lord, you know the situations that we're in. You know the places that you've called us to serve. But we want to do it in your strength. We want to do it the same attitude that you had, Lord. You took on the very nature of a servant. You went all the way to the cross for us to set us free so we'd have the freedom to love and serve others as you call us to. Do your work in us, Lord. Continue to speak to us in Jesus' name.